Good morning, brothers and sisters. Uh, if you haven't done so already, I invite you to take up your Bibles. Uh, turn with me to Job chapter 42, verse 5. Job 42, verse 5. Uh, now, I have the privilege of being able to preach this sermon again at SBF this evening, so I've actually prepared using the ESV. Uh, you may notice some rather slight differences, um, but that's the reason for that. Um, having heard... God thunder away from within the whirlwind. Uh, Job answered and said, I'd heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Would you join me in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, how humbling it must have been for Job to be confronted by you, the living God. Yet what a blessed thing that you would so incline as to come down and reveal yourself to speak and make yourself known. We are the beneficiaries of these words, your words, in Scripture. And we come to them in the name of your Son. Teach us by your Holy Spirit. Speak to us and help us to know you and to worship you in spirit and in truth. Amen. Uh, last week, our senior minister, Kevin, came up to bring us the announcements. And like a good minister, he also took the opportunity to share a reflection on the sermon. Uh, in particular, Elihu's words from chapter 37, where Elihu uh, simply marvels at the majesty of God displayed in the universe. And Kevin asked, well, how is it that someone like physicist Brian Cox can study these wondrous things and be humbled by them and yet still effectively be agnostic towards the existence of God? Uh, in Professor Cox's documentary series, Human Universe, uh, which he describes as a love letter to humanity, he explains how the universe produced us. Beautiful, complex, conscious human beings. Uh, despite the fact that the universe has no purpose and does not care for us in the slightest. Ironically, our ability to know more about the cosmos than any known living creature, all that provides us is the recognition that we are remarkably insignificant. And so just at that point in his documentary when you're starting to feel yourself dissolve into your armchair and wonder why am I even here, Professor Cox offers you this consolation in the form of a quote from astronomer Carl Sagan. For small creatures such as we, the vastness is bearable only through love. Whew, what a relief! Uh, the psychology of that quote is brilliant uh, because what it does is it shifts our focus and enables us to hear exactly what we want to hear and uh, helps us to overlook what is right there in front of us. The vastness is bearable only through. In other words, the vastness of our universe is unbearable. The more we study why the universe is, the more we realise what small creatures we are, which is unbearable. Knowing why is unbearable. So having been rebuked by the why of our existence, the relief is found only in asking who? 
Who do I love? Who loves me? That's what gives us significance. When we look up at a starlit night and then we look over to the one we love, oh, what a relief. I do have meaning. Uh, at this point, you're probably wondering, uh, what has any of that got to do with the book of Job? Well, it demonstrates that truth is never purely abstract. The questions we have about our lives and their answers are not indifferent, but deeply personal. Job and his friends have been wrestling with the questions of why. Why is Job suffering? Why is justice being withheld? Why can't anyone understand Job's case and point to a satisfying resolution? And God knows that for Job to really know the answer to those questions, to know why the universe is the way that it is, Job would have to know the entire universe and it would crush him. The vastness of it would be unbearable for a small creature like Job. So what God does is he gives Job a turn in the God of the universe simulator to show Job that if he wants to know why, he will have to know who. He will have to have a go at being on the same plane as the God of the universe. Now, I hope that what you can already see is that this uncomfortable and terrifying experience, for Job at least, is actually an incredibly loving act of God. David sings in Psalm 8, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Who is Job? Who is God? And does God care? Well, the first thing that we observe is that God cares enough to come down and make himself known. Job 38, verse 1. Then Yahweh answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, uh, if you look in your Bibles there, whenever you see the word Lord in all caps, it means the word being translated is Yahweh, the personal covenant name of God that is presented to Moses in Exodus 3, 13 to 15. And the imagery of God thundering to one man, coming down in his glory, is what God did in Exodus 19, what we call the theophany or the manifestation of God at Mount Sinai. Now, Job is not an Israelite, and more than likely this is happening sometime before Moses. So what is the point? Well, the point is that God's revelation of himself throughout Scripture is consistent. Whenever Yahweh comes down, we are confronted with a paradox. The God who is infinitely glorious over all of creation, the God who is transcendent, is also the God who is coming close and personal. Yahweh is paradoxically the God who is both transcendent and imminent. Now, the name Yahweh only ever appears in the narrated parts of Job, primarily the beginning and the end of the book, except for one time. Back when Job was still hoping and trusting, Job chapter 12, verse 9, he says, Who among all these does not know that the hand of Yahweh has done this? 
And Job says this in the midst of a section where he himself is declaring Yahweh's sovereign transcendence over creation. So it's as if God decides to start there with Job in the simulator. Job chapter 38 verse 3. Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Okay, you strapped in Job? There's your safety brief. Let's go, serial one. Um, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Okay, um, serial two. Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? No? No, I didn't think you'd get that one. Uh, serial three. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? And on it goes. If you just run your eyes down the page, who, 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 where were you, have you, what is, who has, can you, do you know? Declare if you know all this. You know, for you were born then. And after running Job through the cosmos, light and darkness, forces of nature, and it's clear that Job cannot keep pace with God in the transcendence serials, he starts bringing the focus closer to home for Job. Uh, okay, Job, uh, looks like transcendence isn't really your domain. That's okay. The cosmos isn't for everyone. Um, let's see how you go knowing your own backyard. Uh, surely you'll do better than me in that space. Verses 39 to 41. Can you hunt the prey for the lion? Who provides for the raven its prey? No, nothing? What about some animals like the ones you used to own? Chapter 39. Do you know about gestation cycles? How about donkeys? You must have felt that they were pretty dependent on you. But have you considered the wild ones that range the mountains as their pasture? Who provides their food? What about the ox? 500 yoke you owned. Gee, it's interesting how you would measure them by what you used to restrain them. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night in your manger? Verse 12, do you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? Okay, um, here's an easy one. How about a dumb bird like the ostrich who runs around in circles, a bit like your three friends over there? She leaves her eggs to the earth, forgetting that a foot may crush them. Verse 17, because I have made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. Yet, verse 18, when she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at you, sitting on your horse, all high and mighty. On oh, that horse, by the way, the one you sit upon, feeling so strong and courageous, verse 19, do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying, which is probably why the sound of horses' hooves in the battle is terrifying for you, but exhilarating for him. He has no fear of death. Oh, and speaking of death, what about the birds that clean up the battlefield? Verse 27. Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? At which point, um, probably as Job is about to pass out, God says, pause simulation. Chapter 40, verse 2. Job, 
Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Job answered, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Why did Job need to hear these things? Why do we need to hear them? Well, these exercises in transcendence and imminence that God runs through whenever he reveals himself in Scripture serve to satisfy our fundamental longings. For God to be our comfort, our peace, our refuge, our joy. We, like Job, need to be able to trust that God is both able and willing to care for us. When we lose sight of his transcendence, we believe that he cares about us, but not that he is capable of doing anything to help. So we will run to other sources of help in the hope that they will save us. This is why God repeatedly rebuked his people for running after the nations and seeking salvation from foreign kings. And why Jesus repeatedly rebuked those who looked to their money or status for salvation. And when we lose sight of his imminence, we will believe that he is in control over all things, but that there is no possibility of relational intimacy. And so we'll turn to idols, something that has no real power, but offers the comfort of being there, right in front of us, right when we need it to be, soothing our feelings and pacifying our desires. So when we heard Job's response in 42 verse 3 read aloud, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. We can say, oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, I, I see the relief in that rebuke. God was indeed condescending. Lovingly, he came down to deal with Job, despite Job's small account and despite the obvious fact that God was still running the universe. And mercifully, he put Job in his place, stooping down to Job's level, if only to relieve him of the burden of thinking that he could do a better job than God himself. Which is where we get into the challenge, I think, of God's speech. Now that he has started to give us a sense of his capacity to care for us, he really needs to shake us free from the belief that we can do a better job caring for ourselves. This is really the thrust of God's challenge in 46 to 14. If you think you can do a better job caring for yourself, if you can save yourself, then, verse 11, pour out the overflowings of your anger. And look on everyone who is proud and bring them low. And tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Uh, at which point God dropped the mic. Now I know that uh, this challenge is what helps us to comprehend the images of behemoth and leviathan that follow. I don't think it profits us to try and figure out what exactly these beasts were. 
In fact, I think the mystery of them was actually supposed to add to the sense that Job could do nothing to tame what he could scarcely identify. What I do think we can see is that these beasts are intended to represent the greatest threats to our existence. Something along the lines of death itself and quite possibly the Satan from chapters 1 and 2, whose presence and involvement results in death, destruction and misery. What links these beasts is that God asks Job whether he can put on their leashes. And I think that is the image I want you to have in mind. Regarding Behemoth, 40 verse 24, can you take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? Then 41 verse 1, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? If you can picture, it's like God is holding a Doberman and a Rottweiler in his hands by the leads. And uh, they're not tame, but they are under control. They're not safe, but they are restrained. God can look at them both and he can marvel at their size and their ferocity and their killer instinct. Um, He has them on a leash. They're not going to harm him. And now imagine that God looks at you and says, it's okay. They're not safe with you, but you're safe with me. That is profoundly comforting, not only because it's powerful, but because it's personal. Again, when we think back to how Job responded to God, chapter 42, verse 5, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. When all you can see is the snarling jaws of a Doberman and a Rottweiler coming for your neck, that's not the time when you want the God that you have heard about. What was his name? Who was that God? Now that's the time when you want the God who appears, who you can see standing there behind those dogs, holding the leads. And he says, down, don't you touch that one. They're with me. And if you're a follower of Jesus, what a privilege you have to see this one. As we know, Paul says in Colossians 1, 15 to 17, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I get the sense that this is what Job has a foretaste of when he begins his confession after God's speeches. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. There's nothing impersonal about that response. What Job has come to realize is that Yahweh, a who and not a why, is the power and the purpose and the preeminence. Truth is personal and that is deeply comforting. Brothers and sisters, I think we know that there is a rebuke in this text and that Job, uh, that like Job, we are going to need to relinquish 
our desire to run the universe and to save ourselves. And that is what Job means when he says in 42 verse 6, which both the ESV and the NIV have translated quite strongly, uh, I despise myself. Um, what Job is effectively saying is, I reject or refuse myself. I refuse to trust in my own abilities anymore. Please don't put me back in the simulator. Please hold the dogs at bay. But I also wanted to offer one last comfort in this rebuke, and it's a hard comfort, I know, but it's that while Job was a unique person who had a unique encounter with God, his discipleship is going to bear similarities with our discipleship. Simon Peter was a guy full of devotion, sincerely enthusiastic to follow Jesus. But like Job, he thought he could offer God some pointers, and he relied on his own ability to go the distance. Now listen to how familiar this sounds. Luke chapter 22, verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And as we know, Peter too was restored by some stinging questions by God. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And so having also been relieved of himself, this is what Peter says to us. To close, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. And because of the time, we'll begin at verse 6. One Peter chapter five, verse six. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God came down. He condescended. Once and for all, when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and he, the Lord Jesus Christ, challenges us. The one who says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, is the same one who says, if any man would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And believe me, brothers and sisters, he is the same one who leads you as you follow him through his sufferings, 
through his death, through his resurrection, and into eternal life. He is the God of all comfort. Our God is truth. Our God is personal. And his name is Jesus Christ. Let's conclude.